0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Aspire and Inquire. Today, as always, we we have another amazing guest on the show. And today, we're actually going into the world and realm of religion. Uh, I am fortunate enough to speak with uh, distinguished rabbi, Rabbi Jamie Gibson. Uh, Rabbi Gibson, how are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Really excited to have you on the show. We have a lot to cover here. I'm very excited to, to dive into this with you.
1: Well, let's start.
0: Great. So first, I would like to say that you are a friend and, and my grandma's rabbi. So uh, I want to publicly thank uh, grandma for introducing us and making the connection. Thank you, grandma. We are um, both
1: in the Amy Kelman fan club.
0: That is correct. The Amy Kelman fan club. And so I'll start off by giving a brief introduction about you, and then you can expand upon that as you see fit. How does that sound? Sure. Great. So you graduated, you went to undergrad at University of Michigan, where you received your bachelor's degree in history. You were then ordained by the Hebrew Union College, uh, the Jewish Institute of Religion, where you had the opportunity to study in both Jerusalem and Cincinnati, which is pretty cool. And you also got a Master of Arts in Hebrew Letters and an Honorary Doctor of Divinity as well. And an amazing resume, which I'm sure you're very proud of.
1: Well, thank you. You know, I don't think of it in terms of pride. I think of it in terms of just another rung on the ladder of my life's journey and the academic credentials that have helped me succeed in my life's work.
0: That's amazing. Well, you have certainly earned it and you have created a reputation for yourself, uh, which is, is pretty incredible. So is there anything else you'd like to say regarding introducing yourself?
1: I think one of the things that I've tried very hard to do in my rabbinate is not just serve the congregations, and I've served two. I served one in northern Wisconsin, based in Wausau, about two and a half hours north of Madison, Wisconsin. And for 32 years, I was the senior rabbi at Temple Sinai in Squirrel Hill, which many of your listeners may recognize as the place of the shooting that took place two years ago this month at Tree of Life Orla Simcha, Campus, which involved three congregations, and I was literally naming a baby in my arms as that shooting was going down, and to find out all these disparate things going on in our incredibly welcoming, diverse, wonderful, safe neighborhood was was more than mind blowing. It really was.
0: Yeah, that's that's something we can definitely cover when we when we talk about the coronavirus pandemic, and um, we'll definitely talk about the, the horrible. Shooting in Pittsburgh, and I did want to say before we go any further that yes, you you were a senior rabbi in Temple Sinai in Pittsburgh for 32 years, and you recently retired. So congratulations, that's amazing.
1: Thank you. Pandemic retirement is not the way I envisioned it, but you know we're all dealing with this to the best of our ability with the tools that we have.
0: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those situations where there's not too much we have can we have control of, but for the things we do have control of, being optimistic about those things. uh, I think that's probably the most important thing we can do.
1: I agree. My wife, who's an operating room nurse at the local hospital here, at one of the local hospitals, describes it as a short-term, slow-moving problem. So in the course of a human life, assuming that we do not get ill and die or are becoming incapacitated, it may take a year or two of our lifespan and we have to give it all the attention we can now so it doesn't become a long-term problem instead of a short-term one.
0: Absolutely. That's a really good way of looking at it. And as 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 slow a process as this may seem, it's really good to take that outside perspective, thinking that in, you're right, in the course of a human life, this really isn't all that long. As we if we can come together as a community and well, yeah, it's interesting. You say come together as a community, but Social distance and and keep keep your distance while also helping your community. Uh, we'll get out of this together.
1: And of course, we've had to learn to come together as a community via electronic means, via right. Zoom, via Teams, via via the software that we're actually quite thankful for because it didn't exist 15 years ago, and it gives us some measure of connection with each other, even though it kind of leaves us, you know. It leaves us wanting more. It's not quite satisfying as being in person.
0: 100%. Absolutely. Figured we'd get right into it by, by speaking about a career as a rabbi. So so not many people, at least me, myself, I, I never really thought about the fact that being a religious leader, whether that's uh, a priest or, 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 in your case, of course, a rabbi, as a career. Can you tell me about the, the career as a rabbi?
1: Well, sure. Being a rabbi in America means getting one's professional credentials, which can take anywhere from four to six or seven years, postgraduate. And it means being willing to serve. Now, there are a lot more opportunities to serve as a rabbi now than when I started. When I started, it was mostly 90% congregational, maybe 10% hospital chaplaincy. But now that there are various community rabbinic roles. Here in Pittsburgh, we have a community scholar who lives half the time in Jerusalem, half the time here, who does extensive teaching throughout the community and to specialized cohorts as well. And in other cities, there are different kinds of rabbinates where people say, well, I don't really want to be you know, hampered or limited by a building or a set program. I'm just gonna attract people to go with me on a spiritual journey. And they have a different kind of rabbinate. My rabbinate is a profession uh, in congregational terms with a good deal of respect and social status, despite the fact that some extremists in religion have given our our calling a a difficult time, if not a bad name, uh, to be involved in walking with people as they journey to access their spirituality through their unique traditions and be there at every step of their journey whether it is through birth death suffering or joy is a unique honor and it's in america it's actually a profession that you can feed your family it's not it's not poverty wages you get a professional salary by and large and you can fulfill your personal goals as well as serve your congregation or your community. And in my case, I got to serve my congregational community and serve the community at large through a whole host of interfaith and interracial efforts from dialogue to alliance to activism. And those were very, very important in the totality of the rabbinate that I served.
0: And you were able to serve different communities, and, and and help many different types of people across the country, which is really cool, both in smaller congregations as well as a, a bit of a bigger one in Pittsburgh, correct?
1: Correct. So in Wausau, Wisconsin, I served 84 households that were spread out over a hundred mile radius, and I was the only rabbi for a hundred miles. And that carried a responsibility to accept many different approaches to Judaism, but also to spend a tremendous amount of time in the car. I took, I probably drove 30,000 miles a year for five years to get to people where they were because you couldn't always ask people to come to where your office was. People live their lives in their communities, not necessarily in your building. And in Pittsburgh, I've been able to have what I would call a concentric circle of of outreach to our congregants, to their extended families, to our community, to our city, our region, our nation, and even internationally. So I've been to several countries as part of my rabbinic work, mostly to Israel, which I've visited more than 30 times.
0: What has been your experience as a rabbi in Israel?
1: Well, it's challenging, and you may know this, uh, that reform rabbis are not recognized by state because there is a state Religion: the state religions in Israel are essentially Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And Reform Judaism is not recognized as a legitimate expression of Judaism, although that's beginning to change. Whereas most Orthodox rabbis who work in various capacities are paid salaries by the state, Reform rabbis don't get that advantage except in certain cases. And so... Whereas synagogues have a tremendous amount of state funding for the synagogue, not just the rabbinic role in reform congregations, by and large, reform rabbis have to do individual fundraising and literally raise the money to pay their own salaries. But I have worked and studied mostly in Jerusalem, but been up and down the breadth and length of the country. I've led 11 Tours of my congregation to Israel from starting in 1993. And of course, the country's changed radically over that time. Oh, yeah. And the last tour I did, I put together an interfaith tour between us and a Presbyterian church because the Presbyterian church has some pretty difficult language in the Presbyterian Church USA's denominational stance vis a vis Israel. And I wanted people to not look at language in a platform but see things with their own eyes so i said that we would see three countries in eight days we would go to the holy land which is really the geographic sites associated with christian faith and history we would go to israel the jewish state and we would go to the palestinian territories and see what life was like and what how challenging and different all those lives were um in this country that is the size of New Jersey, which is really, really extraordinary to think about.
0: And when you think about what someone chooses to do with their career and their life, there's always a reason for for that being a calling. And so my question is, what what were you most passionate about uh, when you decided to become a rabbi? What did you want to achieve?
1: Well, I wanted to be, listen, when I started out in college, uh, I wanted to become a high school history teacher, but when I finished college, there were no jobs for high school history teachers. We used to say, if you were not teaching math, science, or special ed, you weren't getting a job. Hmm. And I did every kind of job under the sun. I was you know, a youth group leader for a concerted synagogue. I substitute taught. I was a full-time secretary for the University of Minnesota School of Public Health because I could type 85 words a minute accurately. Uh, which which is a rarity for males in those days. And I realized that rabbi in Hebrew does mean teacher. And whether you're teaching text, history, ethics, you're teaching sacred scripture, you're teaching by example, you're teaching how do we access values that are not just based on what Amazon has on sale that week. (laughs)
0: So it's it's much larger than just saying, uh, yes, I am a Jew and I want to practice religion for the rest of my life. It's it's much much more than that for you, right?
1: It's a it is being able to lead by example and facilitate the journey of others who may not necessarily make the choices that you make. But that is only done on the basis of knowledge, and one of the challenges of the American Jewish scene is that there is a woeful lack of knowledge so that people can make competent choices about what Judaism offers and what practices might enrich people's lives, especially when we talk about the real challenges of living a life, whether it's alienation right now in the pandemic or sudden loss. You know, next week will be four years since my father was walking the street in Minneapolis, was struck and killed by a car. He was walking in the walk lane with the green light, with the walk. And, you know, the physical world didn't care. A car broke the law and struck him and he died. I have to make sense of that. People have to make sense of the fact that they are getting this COVID diagnosis and losing relatives in three days. We have a congregant who, when one partner got the COVID, the other went into the hospital with her to make sure he got it too, and they died within three hours of each other. And they were together as they died, as they were together in life. What does all that mean? How do we walk that? And again, what religions do is they say, you don't have to invent your own way. There is an established path. And what liberal religion or liberal Judaism does is says, here are all the things our tradition says that we should do. What about the things that you might do that conform to tradition and what's going to be helpful and frankly, what's not going to be helpful and what's going to help you find a sense of connection, comfort, meaning and purpose as you go forward, faced with the real challenges that we all face from birth to death.
0: I'm glad you touched on the fact that uh, religion, it makes meaning out of things. I think every single thing that that humans do that is either outside of our understanding or truly any action that's taken that is outside of our control, we are always trying to make meaning out of it.
1: I think that we're we're almost genetically programmed for it. I think that we hate the idea of something happening to us, and we can't give a cause, a meaning, or a context.
0: You talked about unlocking being a, a mensch, as you could say. What role do God and religion play in, in your life outside of your job, work?
1: I think that's a, it's a terrific question. At the same time, we have to understand that I'm going to be looking at God differently than many of your listeners think when they hear or use the word god
0: making meaning out of something that isn't necessarily understandable and in, in this situation i'm referring to both the coronavirus pandemic as well as the 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 pittsburgh uh shooting um
1: well they're very very different um phenomena the pittsburgh shooting was a human act of evil by someone who decided to take human life, the sacred gift of God, for the sake of conspiracy theory, hatred, prejudice, anti-Semitism, you name it. Right. The virus has no emotion whatsoever. The virus only knows how to spread and reproduce. And the question what we do in the face of that will largely determine whether we are safe, whether we get sick, or whether we become an asymptomatic transmitter of the disease of somebody else. Right. So I do not say nature is evil. Earthquakes are not evil. Evil is a human construct to deal and understand human actions. But the world is what the world is. And it's really, really important that we not assign intent to nature, which is simply a force or that we ignore our responsibility in responding to nature. And at the same time, when there is evil, when human beings make those choices to denigrate others, to commit injustice to others, to deny their humanity for the sake of our fear or our weakness, well, that's when spiritual people need to stand up and say, no, I will not let you do that, or I will not let you do that unchallenged.
0: Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more with you. They are they are very different. The only reason I grouped them together was uh, for for the sake of the question uh, being that during during these horrible, unthinkable situations, even though they are quite different, uh, I was wondering how how has religion been a haven for for so many during these horrible situations? One directly having to do with religion itself and anti-Semitism and the other being, as you mentioned, nature with, with no emotion, no intent, just that being what it was. I, I was wondering if you have seen people uh, enter your doors, so to speak. And I say so to speak in the pandemic, of course, because hopefully there have been social distance <laughs> followers that have been joining, but but from a distance.
1: Well, uh, you know something, the high holidays, all synagogues in America did their high holidays online unless they were being um, reckless or dangerous. And what people found was people could access any service they wanted across the globe, not just their services of the synagogue with which they were associated or connected. When the pandemic hits, we when any crisis hits, our first go-to response is to bring the community together, which is the one thing we can't do we can't bring the community together you know by contrast, when the um, when the sh- shooting happened, the community came together immediately there was a pouring rainstorm and outside of the large A gathering place in the university uh, neighborhood called Oakland Soldiers and Sailors Hall. Twenty five hundred people filled that place to capacity, with another fifteen hundred waiting outside in a rainstorm, listening over loudspeakers. Two nights, give me less than it was Saturday morning, Shabbat morning, and then it was Sunday night. Everyone came together and there are still structures in place in pittsburgh to help people who are dealing with ptsd who are dealing with economic issues by the way we're also dealing with economic fallout from the pandemic and the jewish community has has, has come right up to the bar to help people in need no questions asked as have catholic charities and lutheran social services this is what religion does and again the problem is what would really really help lots of people would be frankly to be held and comforted and be told that they're going to be okay or even in the face of their loss they're not alone and we can't do those things except via electronic means but after the synagogue shooting people went into overdrive to come together and make sure that people were not alone and the muslim community stood at the side of us jews and when I had Friday night services, Shabbat evening services, the Friday night after that, I was had already done an eight-minute interview with Anderson Cooper on CNN with the executive director of the Islamic Center, Wasi Muhammad. And I said, come to Friday night, not as a protest, but come and pray with us. We expected 350 people, 1,300 people came. We wow. literally ran out of room. And that happened all over the country, in Boston, in New York, and all over the place. And For the Jews, it's been pointed out by people who are smarter than me. Our experience with anti-Semitic acts in Europe was that the police either joined in the violence or looked the other way. In Pittsburgh, they took bullets for us. Our experience with some forms of Christianity was that very violence was sometimes fomented in churches And here were Christians saying, we don't want to convert you. We just want to be with you. And the Muslims too. The Muslims raised more than $200,000 in 72 hours to help with funeral costs and the needs of the surviving families and those who had survived the attack in hospital. And that was incredible. That's religion at its best. And that happened at Mother Emanuel in Charleston. It happened after a mosque was blown up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It happened in San Antonio where these things happen. People really do want to help. And spirituality helps us understand that we're part of something larger than ourselves, that it's not just only an ethical human response. It's to make meaning of what is our place on earth in the first place. Because you know, as I say, often life is pretty short And you're dead for a really long time (laughs) you know what i mean yeah so what are you going to do with it what are you going to do with it and most people come to the understanding that your life cannot be filled by things whether bought from stores or amazon that they're merely you know they're uh, except for the essentials which we all need decent food fresh produce vegetables things like that that the things are just that, things. Mm-hmm. And what matters and endures is relationship. And spirituality fosters those relationships.
0: My next question is just going to be a short one, which may not have a short answer. Is religion a subset of spirituality? Or are they separate entities?
1: Yes. That's the shortest answer I can give you. Spirituality. Religion is a subset of spirituality. Here's an example, and I've shared this too. It's from a religious sociologist who teaches at Harvard named Robert Putnam, who wrote an incredible book called American Grace with a professor from Notre Dame. And he says, it doesn't matter if you believe in the dogma at all. If you go to services at your chosen faith community every week for a year, you will be a better person, whether you believe in the dogma or not, because Mm -hmm. the social capital that is built up through that organization through the caring for each other in worship, after worship, over donuts, over social justice, over getting coats for a coat drive for winter, you will be a better person. And one of the challenges of the spirituality we have here in America is America is founded on an ethos of individualism. We all have individual rights to, to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And yet individuals have a really, really tough time being self-sufficient we need each other one of the most important jewish teachings from 2000 years ago is the rabbi who said altifrosh minat do not separate yourself from the community because the community needs you and frankly we need the community and we need the spiritual truths or teachings that bring the community together as guideposts. so i'm not a fundamentalist in any way shape or form But I understand the power of spirituality in a world that is frankly right now driven by tremendous amounts of fear and uncertainty over what's going to happen. Sometimes that fear and uncertainty is rooted in the natural world by wildfires or earthquakes or floods. And sometimes it's rooted in uncertainty over whether or not somebody's going to get a job, much less keep a job, throughout their lifetime. And so spirituality will tell us that our struggles are not just in service of ourselves, but if we bring each other together, we can meet those struggles and create meaning for each other and uphold our ancient truths about the meaning of a human life and what does it mean to be spiritual and what does it mean to try to connect to a God that we can't see or touch.
0: So my next question is going to be Maybe one you don't hear all the time in your congregation, but I think it's important to discuss. How, how do you speak about God with others who, who may not necessarily believe or, or find the value in God, which you may see from more of your younger audience?
1: Well, I think one of the th- most important points to make to people is that God is not one thing, that God is not categorized according to one definition and that there is a multiplicity, there is a strong range, there's a powerful range of ideas and beliefs about God. And here's the discussion I have with my 10th graders. I had it all the time, which is, they would say, I would say, we're going to spend two weeks talking about Jewish ideas of God. Well, Rabbi, I don't believe in God. I say, okay, well, tell me which God don't you believe in? The God of Abraham? What's that? The God of Rashi, a medieval commentator? Who's he? The God of Martin Buber? Who's he? The God of Judith Plaskow, a feminist version? Who's she? And that's when I say, do you believe that there is meaning in the world? And almost every 10th grader who is not living in a war zone will say, yeah, there's meaning in the world. Is there order in the world? And they will say, yeah, in my little world, yeah, there's order. Yeah, the sun comes up every day. The seasons happen and on and on and on. Is there purpose in the world? And most teens think, yeah, even if it's hard to ascertain what they're going to do in the world, that they think there's a purpose in the world. So well, if you think there's meaning, order, and purpose in the world, you believe in God. You just don't know how to frame it or define it. And you only have the rest of your life to figure that out. We call that the Mop God, the meaning, order, and purpose. And I'm not afraid to say that's an original insight of mine. That as human beings, as I said, we are genetically programmed or wired for meaning. And that if you believe in meaning, order, and purpose, you can believe that God is the force of the universe that makes sure the universe obeys Kepler's laws and that asteroids are not destroying the earth every single day of the year. You can believe that God is within you, completely within you and not an external being at all. And then people ask, what happens when you go to the hospital and you pray for somebody? I say, well, I'll take their hand and I'll pray for them. But when I'm praying for a cancer patient, I am not praying that God stopped the process of nature and stopped cells from subdividing, which is what cancer is, growth gone wild. I am praying for the skill of doctors and the compassion of nurses and the ability of people to stick needles into your arm without giving you too much hurt. I'm praying for the individual patient to have resolve and resilience, patience and strength. I'm praying that the family members of that person in the hospital not be so terrified of the disease that they stay away. Now, if all those things happen, the doctor's skill, the nurse's compassion, the blood drawer's craft, and the individual who, has, who, who can tap into a sense of strength and purpose and overcome their terror, and the family come support that person, that person has the best possible chance of fighting that cancer. It's no guarantee that the person is going to survive cancer. There are no guarantees. We're made of material stuff that breaks down. It's part of who, what makes humans human. It's part of what makes life so precious. So I do not pray to God for supernatural miracles. And most people don't. Most people want the best chance they can get to live the life that is available for them to live.
0: That's really interesting. And it's interesting that you, you put religion and natural events separate, how no matter what you do to pray, nature will be nature, Um, which, which I think is fascinating. And you probably hear people say, and this is a question I've actually had myself. uh, People say, well, there's all these horrible things happening in the world all the time you've got earlier in the year the forest fires in australia now forest fires in california and and people say okay why why would god have this happen why would this happen is it to test us what what do you what do you say when people say stuff like that
1: well first of all you know i like woody allen even though woody allen is in great disfavor nowadays woody allen said if god is going to test us you prefer a multiple choice it'd be a lot easier right (laughs) um we have two difficulties that we deal with in our world one has to do with nature being nature which is the natural world acting as the natural world does except insofar as we affect the course of nature which is climate change and things like that and then there's human action well the price of free will and we all insist that we have free will is that we can do the wonderful and the terrible And if you say, well, God shouldn't let us do the terrible, well, you don't believe in free will. It's really that simple.
0: Yeah, that is simplistic and complex at the same time.
1: Well, people say, well, how could Hitler do what he did? Well, the thousand-year Reich was 12 years. Why? Because the people of France, England, America, Canada, and Australia, and the other allies bled. Millions of people died, not just the people in the Holocaust. 75 million people died in World War II. They died. To me, that is God acting in the world, that people stood up to that kind of hate, violence, and intolerance. And God acts through us. We Jews have a prayer that God upholds the falling and heals the sick and frees the captive. And people say to me all the time, well, how does God do that? I say, we're the hands of God. We are the hands of God. And if we don't do it, we can't complain that God didn't do it for us. And I think that that's really hard for people to get wrap their minds around, that we have a responsibility. And that if you believe in free will, there's the wonderful and there's the terrible. And both are absolutely possible and they absolutely do happen.
0: The question around uh, do we have free will is such an interesting one. And I love your take on, or, or your response to, to my thoughts on it. Free will to me is actually not a thing because I believe we are all a collection of our past experiences, how we were brought up as humans. So that could be our parents the influences from close family, friends, or anyone you spend time with. I think every action you take is in response to something in your past or something external to yourself.
1: I think that's, I, I have to think about that way of framing it. There's a lot I agree with. There's some I disagree with. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, there is a whole school of sociobiologists, uh, headed by a guy who's named E.O. Wilson, and a his religious historian, not a religious historian, but an historian named Yuval Harari, who wrote a book called Homo Deus, who believe that free will is a myth; that we are completely controlled by biological impulses, responses, and instincts that have come down to us, and there is no free will. And if there is no free will, to me, morality is a joke. A murderer's murder because they can't do anything other than they're programmed to do, and I do, I do believe that the that the world works differently and that human beings act differently than using that frame where we don't have responsibility for our acts. We are free to choose. Our cho- choices are are modulated and affected by all the things that you said. And I truly believe that we are responsible. Now, there's a wonderful medieval thinker from almost a thousand years ago named Moses Maimonides who said, you know, most evils in the world can be avoided the more knowledge you have. The more knowledge you have, you can avoid that which will harm you or your family. And the business, again, going back to my 10th graders, which has been the proving ground for so many of my ideas over the years. You know that people in California, they live on a fault line (laughs) where two tectonic plates meet called the San Andreas Fault. So when the big one hits in the next 20 to 30 to 50 years and religious leaders say, well, it's because they were gay people or because we weren't moral enough or because of this or that, Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, who lived from 1135 to 1204, is screaming across history, you built on a fault line, (laughs) (laughs) Right? right? You built on a fault line. And so we tend to think of our acts as just in terms of what's in front of our eyes at a given moment, not realizing that all of our acts have outcomes and consequences that extend far beyond what we see in any given frame of our own experience and that we judge evil, by the way, by what happens to us,
0: mm.
1: not necessarily what would happens to others. We have to really look outside ourselves to identify with the evil that ex- others experience and try to ameliorate it to the best of our ability. So although the phrase tikkun olam, world repair, re- has its roots in the mystical tradition where we try to affect the repair and the relationship between God and the world, which is a whole mystical lesson, which we'll leave for another time. Hmm. It has become a catchphrase by saying, Hey, the ills of this world, the hurts of this world need to be addressed by me in my capacity as somebody who does not believe the world begins and ends with myself. And that's really, really challenging for some people. And what does that mean? What is our responsibility? How far does it extend? And one of the greatest rabbis of all time in the first century, a man named Hillel, put this beautifully. He said, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? And I would say that simple three sentence formulation of who we are vis-a-vis the world, who our community as Jews is vis-a-vis other communities is beautifully summed up and it's a seesaw. It's not a fixed point that you can say, this is where we stand because the world and events are going to demand different responses. I try to tell people on a pretty consistent basis that there are 8 billion people in the world and that Jews are statistically insignificant. There are 14 million Jews in the world there are fewer jews today than there were september 1st 1939 when hitler invaded poland when there were 18 million jews in the world and we are really starting to repopulate ourselves but we're statistically insignificant 14 million out of 8 billion we punch above our weight mark twain said that more than 100 years ago and our job is to do the most good we can for ourselves so that we can do good for others as well. But we can't ignore the needs of our own people in our quest to do better for the world. We can't only focus on our own people lest we really set down our mission of what Isaiah called being an or la goyim, a light unto nations. It's both. And the beautiful thing about Judaism is unlike other systems of thought that say either or, we're a both and kind of enterprise. We say both and all the
0: time. When you talk about evil, how it's usually just a lack of knowledge or or lack of understanding. I guess you could also rephrase that as naive, naivete. It, it is. It makes sense for all the evils in the world if there's a lack of understanding about something that usually leads to. Or I don't want to say lack of understanding because there's a lot of things in these in this world that aren't one perspective is correct, or one thing itself is, that is the ultimate truth. If you can think about things from different perspectives and see from other points of views, just being there for each other, speaking with different communities and and people within communities, lack of knowledge will will not be a factor then, and you will have empathy for for others. Well, and again,
1: I don't want to deny that there's evil in the world. People do evil things. Sure. Sure. Hurricane Katrina in 2005 in New Orleans wasn't evil. What people did in the face of it, that was evil.
0: Mm.
1: When people refused to get people help, there was a, a, a vivid scene where some African-Americans, some black people in, in New Orleans were trying to escape by crossing over a bridge, and white people lined the bridge saying, you will not come over into our neighborhood. That was evil. Yeah. Charlottesville, the idea that my father was in the armed services in World War II. As so many, you know, as so many people were. 500,000 Jews served in the armed forces in World War II, you should know by the way. That they would see people carrying Nazi banners in Charlottesville, our people fought and bled and died to defeat Nazism. The idea that that would ever be compatible with an American way of life or American way of looking at the world is horrifying. That's evil.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And I, but that evil is a result of human free will and human choice. One of the challenges we have in the, in the country right now is people looking at those who disagree with them and demonizing them and seeing them as caricatures as opposed to human beings. And one of the things I've done in interfaith and interracial dialogue over many, many years is to sit down with people and simply be curious. Why do you believe that way? What are you thinking? Help me understand. And so at the end of the day, even if I disagree with you in a matter of principle, I accept that you're a human being who struggles in this world to find meaning, purpose, and feed one's family just the way I struggle to feed my family. And I can identify with you and say, boy, I think so-and-so is really, really wrong about ABC and XYZ. But I understand them. I understand where they're coming from. I'm just going to work very hard to defeat their ideas, not vanquish them as an opponent.
0: I agree. That's one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue uh, societally in our country today. It's people aren't even open to other perspectives. And if if they don't agree with you, it's wrong. It's incorrect. It's Immoral <laughs> to a certain extent uh, for certain issues. Uh, it's one of the biggest issues in our world today, and I truly wish it was something that wasn't the case because it stems into politics, mm-hmm. society, and it really expands everywhere. And it, it's and I wish it was something that could be solved quickly. It never will. It's going to be something that a large, a very large majority of Americans and as outside America, humans are just going to have to be able to. Speak with each other. That's the biggest issue. People aren't even willing to have that conversation.
1: Right. And I think it's because people are scared. They're scared that if I say something and you disagree and I you find out that I'm right, then you're wrong and that's shameful and embarrassing. And I think that again, a lot of this is out of fear. Look, the nineteen fifties in which I grew up were not the mythical Garden of Eden that so many try to make it out to be. Because it was that mythical Eden was created at the expense and suffering of others who we now acknowledge. At the same time, there seemed to be paths to lifetime employment. So you didn't have to worry about, am I going to be able to feed my, myself and my family? You got a job at the factory. It was a decent paying job. Unions were strong. And yes, I am pro-union. Um, and people could know who they were in the world and now with social structures breaking down with employment structures breaking down people want certainty by the way it's one of the reasons why more orthodox forms of religion are the fastest growing forms of religion in the world and in our country so reform judaism which is a liberal form of judaism which demands that you accept ambiguity in the world people don't want ambiguity they want certainty Everything else in their life is ambiguous and uncertain and unclear. Don't tell me that spirituality is uncertain as well. (laughs) And I understand that. But there are people who are willing to accept that they will not have certainty. And, you know, we were talking about God before. There are times, as I said, where for me, God is the God of the universal natural laws that make the universe work, and there are times where the soul cries out for companionship. And I have enough of my prayers in my heart or in my books that surround me to be able to identify with that God as well. God is not one fixed thing for one certain time for one certain person. Any other God, any God that we conceive that way, limits God. And I can't limit God. And I understand that, that God is bigger than I can ever imagine. And as I told you before, I'm not God. And there are sometimes having a personal God is very comforting for me. Most of the time, I can get along with the God, taking, make, making sure the planets don't crash into each other.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and having the certainty that you are not God and, and being able to explain that to others, as you said before. Because you're right. Nothing is certain. Everything in this world is uncertain. I'd love to speak on the the difference, or at least my, from my perspective, the difference in religious participation between, let's say, Gen X and millennials. Have you noticed this big change?
1: You know, I'm not the right person to ask. You know, I would suggest that you talk to a rabbi who is closer to that age than me. My children are, one is Gen X and two are millennials and I really feel inadequate to speak for them, what they need and what they want. All I do know is that uh, congregations of uh, what I would call mainstream religious denominations are getting smaller because people are looking for individualized boutique spiritual experiences. People are not looking to go, look, you used to go to a mall to a department store. And why did you go to the department store? Because there was the men's section, the women's section, the shoe section, the toy section, and the hardware. It was all right there. Mm. Most people would like now to go to the kind of hardware store that they can get their individual needs met. They can go to a a, a clothing store that they can get their certain individualistic needs met. And the question is whether or not synagogues, which were really created to be a one-stop shop for people's spiritual and community needs, whether they can continue to function in a world where people look for individualistic uh, encounters with the spiritual world. Now, there are exceptions to that. Central Synagogue in Manhattan has a three-year waiting list just to join because they can't accommodate everybody's needs. Most congregations mainstream what are called modern orthodox conservative reform are diminishing in numbers as people find that they either don't know or care to learn the language of their faith spirituality or don't feel a need for it or feel estranged from it and that's going to be a challenge to the next generation of rabbis who need new tools to confront this different changing new landscape which is why frankly i retired a couple years earlier than i could have people wanted me to stay but as i firmly believe it's better to go when they want you to stay than stay when they want you to go (laughs) um and i have complete faith in the new generation of rabbis coming out of hebrew union college jewish institute of religion and other rabbinical programs to meet those needs where I have great and grave suspicion is the number of people who are simply proclaiming themselves to be rabbis or getting internet ordinations or Mm -hmm. short hopping the process that took me five years of graduate school, four years to get a master's degree, a fifth year to get my ordination, to do the hard grounding work to be able to function in this capacity with the authenticity that's required. Not just the intimacy and the intensity, which is a human function, but the authenticity, which requires grounding in the fundamentals and texts and traditions of a faith community, of a faith tradition, excuse me.
0: I like your point about how the new generation of rabbis are going to have to see, they're going to have to come up with solutions for this new modern problem that wasn't wasn't there even i don't know 10 20 years ago and how they react and cultivate a new medium whether that's online or, or however they decide to solve this problem of diminishing following is going to be interesting for sure
1: well diminishing affiliation with brick Three. and mortar synagogues and right. i look there's a wonderful woman ordained by Hebrew Union College in, um, in Denver, who is the wilderness rabbi. She takes people out of wilderness treks to have spiritual experiences in God's great natural world. There are people who are really looking for that kind of thing. That's not a tool in my toolbox. Even though I have done retreats that are deeply meaningful to people over many, many years, there are people who simply need to be chaplains for a community, not just a hospital. And what the American Jewish community needs to do is to be able to fund, as venture capital, new rabbinates, new approaches to how to engage people in Jewish life. And I think it's very, very exciting. But at the same time, I realize the limitations of my toolkit and want to cheer on and support materially others who are going to try to fulfill this mission, because it's not just a, it's, it's not the problem of disaffiliation. It's the phenomenon. If it's a problem, it has to be solved. It's a phenomenon. It has to be addressed. Mm. And I, I think that framing helps because if you see something problem, that's automatically negative. Sure. If it's a phenomenon, you say, oh, that's new. And again, being curious, why is this happening? How is it manifesting itself? How might we respond? So I, I am going to be doing some of the things that I do. I'm going to be teaching at a local college. I'm going to be continuing to do interfaith, interracial dialogue. But the larger problems of the Jewish community in this new landscape I have great faith in the new generation of Jewish leaders, rabbis and cantors and educators, to meet it with all the creativity that they have in their toolboxes.
0: And it's going to be a different Swiss knife, so to say. There's going to be different ways of approaching this phenomenon than maybe someone in previous generations would because they are also ingrained in that society. So I agree. It's going to be a very interesting thing to see.
1: You asked why I chose this. I get to do this and get paid for it. (laughs) I get to be involved in all aspects of the human condition, whether it's study, activism, comfort, celebration, within Judaism, which is time-honored, and my community pays me a a professional salary and allows me to live a middle-class life So that I'm doing more for, I believe that I've spent my professional life doing more than pursuing either life, a good life for my family alone, or just in pursuit of a dollar for its own sake. So I would strongly recommend that people look at paths forward to maybe take on a life as a spiritual leader of some kind. The rewards are infinite, although the road is challenging.
0: If, if anyone wanted to reach out to you or connect with you, where would be the best place to do so?
1: The best place to, uh, would be to email me at my personal email, uh, that, which is lowercase r-a-b-ism boy and the name James, Rab James, and the digits zero seven one five at Gmail, Rab James 0715 at Gmail. Questions welcome, rants not so much.
0: I like that. That's a, good, that's a good way to phrase that prior to anyone reaching out to you. Rabbi Jamie, thank you so much for your time. This was an unbelievably fascinating conversation. I'm really excited to be able to share this with others.
1: Great. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I really enjoyed it.
0: Me as well. Okay.
1: Bye-bye. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode. And make sure to share this with your friends. If you haven't done it yet, give us a follow on Spotify and instagram at aspire underscore inquire to take on this journey with us that being said stay tuned to next thursday because you will not be disappointed peace